in the second century, a monk spun a fanciful story of that first nativity. He had the first family coming alone down from Nazareth, finding a cave, and being stuck there while she gave birth, uh, and subjected to the elements, and a horrible stable. Many of the elements of that poem, that story, have ended up landing in some of the nativity scenes that we even tell today. What was the real historical story? When we look at history and we actually put Joseph and Mary in the history of that first century, what do we really find? What we actually find is a very loving, caring story of how families take care of one another and make sure that each other is safe and that the Son of Man was surrounded by loving people on all sides as he's born. And what of the shepherds? Ah, there's a great many good stories here. Join us for today's class as we put the Joseph and Mary and Jesus story in its historical framing and get some fun surprises in the mix. Thanks for coming along. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. Okay, well let's, let's go ahead and get going. Um, I'm going to apologize uh, at the outside of this that uh, I... Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a history buff. I love history. Uh, and, and so when I get into things like uh, our nativity, we're taking a break from the Book of Mormon today to really kind of look at the nativity. And it's just coincidentally that this week is Christmas. Um, but uh, I want to I provide some historical background uh, to some of the things that we look at in, uh, when we talk about the nativity. Uh, and, and I just think it's fascinating uh, to kind of put that in context. So I apologize right now for the big dose of history you're about to get. So anyway, all right. So let's, if we're going to understand what happened uh, in, that, in that moment with Joseph and, and Mary, we actually need to go back in time just a little bit. We're going to start with the Greeks. Um, and we're going to go back about we're going to go back in time about 300 years. So if we're going to go back 300 years. Um, the Greeks are going to rule uh, the area of Palestine, Judea, from about the mid 300s uh, down to 63 BC. So we need to understand a little bit about the Greeks. Uh, because part of what they would do, as we, as we understand, like we go to, to uh, uh, Acts 17 and Paul and Mars Hill, and you know that they were like accepting and listening to a lot of different gods and 
stuff like that. So they were always trying to learn part of their philosophical, whether you were, uh, depending on if you're Epicurean or you're Stoic or something like that, you were just listening. You didn't just hear stuff, okay? So they tended, when they conquered countries, to not necessarily wipe the country out like Babylon and haul them all off and wipe out your religion and attack your gods. They would just kind of say, yeah, we got it. That's good stuff. And then they would bring in this, like, seductive thing. It looked good. It sounded good. Uh, it was smart. It was erudite, you know, and and uh, so the, the Greeks, if you're, if you're someone like uh, Jewish leaders in Palestine, and here come the Greeks, that's a little bit like, here comes pop culture. And we're not sure that we necessarily like pop culture because the Greeks were so cool. The Greeks were so seductive, right? So, so in the middle of all of this Greekness, they also had a pretty powerful army. And, and the Jews were just kind of restless. This was not, we, you know, we were in Babylon, we were out of exile. We've only been out of exile a couple hundred years. And so there's numerous uprisings that kept happening uh, among the people. And finally they get uh, a uh, Greek leader, uh, dear old Antiochus Epiphanes IV. <laughs> And he was tired of uprisings, really tired of uprisings. And there is a, mo a moment at which uh, Antiochus goes, dang it, that's enough. I'm done trying to put these guys down. The Jews are driving me nuts. And so now what we're going to do, we're going to actually wipe out their culture and wipe out this stupid religion. And instead of being Greek, let live and let live, we're going to conquer and so what he does is, is he does a couple of things. He will, he will plant a statue of Zeus right in the temple. He will then forbid any kind of uh, burnt offerings. He really kind of shuts the temple down in terms of offerings. And, he, and he's very active about trying to suppress any kind of Jewish observance in all, all over Judea and Galilee. Okay. Uh, and all of that, you know your history, all of that gets the attention of who? Come on, uh, Hanukkah people. <laughs> who is it that gets upset with Antiochus, Epiphanes? The Maccabees, absolutely. The Maccabees in the north start to rise up, and, uh, and they're going to be led by Judas the Hammer. Judas the Hammer, Maccabees. Okay, and if you want, you know, a lot, if you get different versions of the Bible, you can read First and Second Maccabees, uh, and and it's in part of that battle then that we're going to get Hanukkah uh, when they recapture the temple and cleanse it, and they don't have enough oil yet produced to run it, and the lamps run longer than they would. And, and, and anyway, so we get we get the Maccabees rising up, and it takes them probably the better part of about 15 years to really finally get rid of the Greeks and it wasn't so much that they conquered the Greeks because this was a little bit like America beating the British uh, this was a little bit more like there were so many internal struggles and Greek 
And the Greek armies between the Ptolemies and everybody else were imploding enough that they were becoming weaker. And they were able to conquer uh, and push back. Okay? So that is, so eventually then you get, uh, finally they're thrown out under uh, Judas the Hammer, who is still one of the uh, big uh, heroes in Jewish history. Plus he has a real Okay, so that is going to bring on, uh, we're now going to get a hundred years pretty much of Jewish independence. Uh, and this, this, they're going to call, this is the Hasmoneans. You're going to get a dynastic group of people, the Hasmoneans, who date back to David, and they're now going to be the kings. Uh, and, and this is going to start uh, about 167. Uh, BC, so the Hasmoneans, and I don't know if you can see that very well, uh, but I'm hearing voices. Oh, I can do this. This is cool. Ah, that worked really well. Okay. So the, the Hasmoneans uh, taking over would be a little bit like. Um, if, if they had been able to conquer the British in, in colonial America when all the Puritans were involved. And then the Puritans were then going to uh, push Puritanism all over the United States. Because the Hasmoneans, especially after listening to all of this seductive Greek stuff, the Hasmoneans are, are very orthodox and they're going to be very aggressive. And they also have kind of a standing army because they've been busy battling this. So they're going to do a couple of interesting things that's going to have a big impact on our nativity scene that we're going to see in the, in, with Joseph and Mary. Okay? Number one, you'll notice that uh, in Judea, with Jerusalem right in the middle here, off on the other side of, of the, uh, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, is the Nabataean kingdom. Anybody know who the Nabataeans are? Weren't they, I, I don't mean to be rude, but aren't they that black? No. No. They have a headquarters at Petra. Oh. The Nabataeans. Uh, the Nabataeans, it, the, uh, you can't see it here, they haven't marked it on here. But the Nabataeans uh, are headquartered in Petra, uh, and it runs right alongside the King's Highway. And the King's Highway, uh, it's still identified as the King's Highway, but we know it, we knew it under another name, which was the Spice Trail. So this was the spices coming from the south, and it followed the King's Highway, the Spice Trail, up past Petra, and, and go right through Petra until the freeway bypassed them. Um, on their way up to Syria and Babylon and stuff like that to bring all of the spices. Uh, so uh, I'll just plant something. Guess what they had really big time in abundance in Petra among the Nabataeans? Some water, spices like frankincense and myrrh and King Solomon's gold mine is nearby there. I'm just... Okay, one of those possibilities. 
So we've got the Nabataeans, uh, and what happened with the Hasmoneans is that they are proselyting with the sword. So they're going to come in and say to the Nabataeans, we know that you've been doing, uh, we know you're Arab, and you have your beliefs, but now you're Jewish. And among the people that they're going to kind of force, proselyte, convert, is the father of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great is actually, his, his, his ancestry goes back to the Nabataeans and Arabs, and it's his father that's converted so that he is, he's never Jewish. One of the reasons why Herod, and we're, we're talking about in a second, the only way, one of the ways to gain legitimacy is he needs to marry into Judaism, so he marries a Jewish. Uh, the Jews never did quite believe it. <laughs> but anyway, so we'll talk, we're going to talk about Herod. Now, so, so number one, they're going to go in among the Nabataeans and they're going to conquer uh, Petra and they're going to kind of make it be Jewish as much as they can. Uh, and then they're going to, by, that's where we're going to get Herod the Great. Okay, that's number one. Number two, you notice on these, air, on the, on these uh, arrows, they're pushing out from Judea. Now, those darn Greeks... Uh, they've had two problems. One is that when Israel went into Babylon and they were pulled out of there, one of the things that the Babylonians did was start bringing in people into especially the upper part of Israel, up at the upper Galilee, and they would bring in people like the Samaritans to occupy this space. And then the Greeks come in and they're doing their Greek thing up there. So it's fine as soon as we finally get the Greeks pushed out of there, there is a concern that that, that upper area uh, north of uh, the, the Sea of Galilee is just kind of open. The, 12, the 10 tribes were there. They got hauled off. It's just been sitting there open. It's been open for other people to move in. This is still our land. And you know what? We ought to fill it with somebody. We ought to reconquer our land. So here's what they did. And, and I'm about to answer the, a question that you've always had about the nativity. You just didn't know that you had it. And now, I'm, now you're going to ask it. Why oh why would Joseph, living in Nazareth, who then is supposed to do some kind of census. We're still not quite sure what that was. He's going to go census, and where the land should stay in the family for generations, his, gen his family generation should be where? Nazareth. Where is Joseph going to feel like he needs to go? Bethlehem, in the south. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Okay? Rachel's, near Rachel's tomb. What? Why would he feel like he has to go all the way down there? Why is that his ancestral home? And I know you've always asked that question. Right, but their ancestral home, they should be living then where? In Judea. What's he doing in Nazareth? Go ahead, Matthew. <laughs> okay. Why? <laughs> okay. And so I'm about to give you the answer. Okay. Uh, what's that? He was a good salesman, right? But what were they selling? 
The problem among the Hasmoneans is they had this open land in the north. And part of creating a buffer and, and filling that is that they then asked people, very devout uh, Jews living in Judea and in the south to go forward and habitate the north. <laughs> yeah, Canab, <laughs> yeah, those kind of places, right? But, it, but some of the same idea, we're going to send people north, and that's going to now be your ancestral home. So about, we think about two generations before Joseph, they're going to go into the north, and they're going to, and they're going to build and build up places like Nazareth. And that, so his ancestry, Joseph and Mary's ancestry is all literally back in Judea, but you've got to go back several generations to be there, but they're still going to go back, right? Well, my question is, is it possible that they were going to do this census and kind of lock everybody into wherever they were at when they got sent? And then Joseph got somebody coming to him in Chinese army saying, Yeah. Who knows? See, here, here, here's part of the problem is that in all of the biblical scholars that I'm reading, both the Jewish ones and the Christian ones and early, said, nobody goes to the census of the Bell. There's no, the only place that we get that Augustus required a, a uh, census and he sent it out through all the world, the only place we get that is in Luke. Not, nobody else has it. So the question is still, hmm, what was that? If there was something, and Luke's not just making it up. There was some census required. Um, but as much as anything, I need you to see that the roots of uh, for Joseph and Mary and stuff like that are all in the south. And that's going to play a role when it's time to come down south when she's pregnant. And where do they stay? It can play a really big role. Okay. Now, so they're in the north. Um, and this is the Hasmoneans. And I, I want to give you... By the way, this, this similar kind of thing is still happening. There it is. Okay. The picture I took of the uh, of the uh, the fields in Bethlehem, the, the shepherd's fields. And I wish I could... Ah, it will. That's cool. right now? Hold on. Okay. Uh, once you see something, um, right down in the valley here is Shepherd's Field. Uh, and it sits at the base of uh, Bethlehem is right behind us, and you get the shepherd's fields down in the bottom there. Uh, and where we're standing is full of little caves and nooks and everything that for for uh, thousands of years have been used in, in this area. And Jerusalem is just over the hill, uh, over the east hill. But uh, I know that you can't see it uh, very well. Um,
See the little white line extending down from the apartments and coming down here on the side? Okay, that's a fence. That's a fence that Israel had built uh, to separate, uh, because we're now, it's standing in shepherd fields, we're in Palestinian territory. It's Beth, we're in Palestinian territory. We're looking Palestinian territory over at Israeli territory on the other side. Those apartments are in Israeli territory, sort of. They're really not. They're in Palestinian territory. When, when you hear the Palestinians complaining about uh, uh, settlements being built in their area, this is, this is one of them. And part of what, uh, and in talking to our Palestinian guide in October, part of what he was complaining about was that little fence that as it comes down and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it incorporates a larger and larger area as you get farther down into the valley and that's all in Palestinian territory but the Israel, Israel because they had so many problems with, with people crossing over from Palestinian territory and creating havoc had to create a buffer zone to kind of protect a little bit especially these settlements um, and, and these guys on this side work off of uh, well water and stuff like that. I don't know if you can tell, there's, there's actually tanks of water on top of those apartments. They're really well furnished and everything, and so the Palestinians are looking over and going, that's really nice, and you've blocked off our land. But Israel is saying, well, we wouldn't block off the land if you stopped bombing our bus stations. Stuff like that. So it's one of those areas of dispute. But, it, it, but you get a sense that for security reasons, they're building settlements to try and buffer, okay? Which is exactly what the Hasmoneans were doing in Galilee, sending people up there, orthodox, driven people to occupy the north part of the Galilee as a bit of a buffer. Does that, does that make sense? And it just has, it has a, a number of effects uh, because of that. Yeah? If you think of this in terms of uh, land use and ranching, like in Montana or Washington, mm -hmm. if you've got a field or a meadow or whatever that is not being used, anybody can go over and say, okay, if somebody's not buying it, then it's not. It's a shooter, a claim of property. This Middle East is all kinds of like, we come through. Yeah. And we can either kill all the cows and then not have any tax base coming into the cows or income coming into the cows, or else we can manage them. Manage them, right. I know that uh, one of the uh, surf points from my uh, my pioneer grandfather, uh, Arza Hinckley, he was asked to uh, go with Thomas Ricks and they settled Rexford together. If anybody's from Rexford, you've been in Rexford. The original Hinckley plot of land is now what is known as Porter Park, in in, in the right in the middle of Rexford, uh, and. and my, your grandfather went to his grave angry because squatters had come in and occupied that land and he couldn't get them off because uh, he had developed it 
fast enough. He was patriarch. He was busy. Um, and, and yet at the same time, he lost his land to squalor. So I get it. All right. That's it. So, so, now, so now we'll up the ante just a little bit. So now we've got uh, the Hasmoneans. And then the Hasmoneans, uh, especially getting the next couple of generations, you have factions that are fighting against each other. And, and there are two uh, prominent Hasmoneans. One has Jerusalem. Uh, and one doesn't have Jerusalem, and Herod has kind of a minor job with the one that is out of Jerusalem. Okay. So here come, here come the Romans. Uh, so in 63 BC, uh, Pompey or Pompey uh, conquers Syria, but they're busy having their own little battles, so they're not really that involved too much in the middle of Judea. But when they conquered Syria, they kind of adopted Palestine. They got Palestine as well. Okay, so so Pompey uh, conquers uh, Syria, and then they have a dispute, and there's a battle between them and between some of these Hasmonean leaders, and they they do this amazing thing. They know that. Uh, the Roman general Mark Antony is up in Syria, and these guys are fighting among themselves, basically about who gets Jerusalem. <laughs> so they ask for a mediator. Who do we think would be great at mediating this battle between these two kingdoms? Oh, the Romans would be great at mediating. <laughs> so, so in some way, Mark Antony doesn't have to just, you know, battle his way down there for the most part he's invited down and it takes a battle they finally take Jerusalem uh, and, uh, with Herod's help Herod's going to be a good buddy and he's going to work hard with Mark Antony and they finally conquer Jerusalem and Mark Antony literally, literally, literally rides into Jerusalem into the temple, right into the Holy of Holies hello, the Romans are here <laughs> okay uh, and and Herod, for his part, is made king, and he's going to be Mark Antony's buddy. And now to, he is kind of the ultimate uh, suck up to the Romans. He's going to want all things Roman, and so he's now going to embark on a massive building project to really prove how Roman he is. So they've got nice palatial houses uh, outside the city of David overlooking the temple. You know, he's going to build great cities like um, uh, Caesarea Maritima, Sephora, Tiberius. Uh, he's going to build a big palatial uh, retreat area in Masada. You know, he's just building stuff all over the place. Roman roads, Roman aqueducts, Roman spas, everything Roman. Now, who's he leaving out? The Jews. What can he do for the Jews? First of all, he marries uh, Salome. He marries a Jewish wife, so he's got his Hasmonean princess, so I'm trying to marry him legitimately. Remember, he's Arab. He's Arab by lineage. He, culturally, he's a Roman. By religion, he's Jewish. Kind of the master of all trades. And he's a massive constructor. So what could he do for the Jews? 
to maybe kind of get into their good graces. Build a temple. Take the little temple in Zerubbabel, which wasn't much, to, wasn't even close to the former uh, beauty of uh, Temple of Solomon, and he embarks on this massive rebuild of the temple, um, and and it, and it really is massive. And and he, in fact, the temple, Herod's temple, will be under construction all during the time of Jesus. Never really finished. In fact, they're still working on it when it finally is destroyed in 78. Because it was, it was just massive change. So, uh, and, and it really is, so it really is amazing. Now, here's, here's where the problem lies, okay? They're, they're going to they're gonna conquer uh, all of that. And then this little problem occurs. In 31, uh, Octavius, uh, after, uh, after his dad is killed, or his uncle is killed, Julius Caesar, he and Mark Antony are going to battle for who gets control of Rome, of the Roman Empire. Okay? And so Herod, with all of his armies and might and wealth and stuff like that, guess who he's backing? Mark Antony. Guess who wins? Octavius. But now he's got a problem. He's king, but he's back a long way. Because Mark Antony had, had, if you remember your history, who does Mark Antony pull in as a, as a uh, ally? Cleopatra. And at the last battle, her ships don't show up. And Mark Antony is defeated by Octavian. Uh, and, and now we have a big problem. And Octavian, by the way, is then uh, declared not just one of the heads of the republic, but he's declared emperor. And his title now is not going to be Octavius, it's going to be Augustus. So he's now, this is where now Augustus Caesar is now placed. <laughs> but Herod, wow, you're talking, about, uh, you're talking about sales guys. Here's, in my mind, is one of the all-time great sales pitches. Um, <laughs> Octavian has defeated Mark Antony. He goes to the island of Malta, and there he's deciding kind of where he's going to go from there. And Herod gets on a ship, and he sails over to Malta, and he goes and he get and he has a, a he gets to meet with Octavian, and he says, "Okay, look, I know I backed you, Mark Antony, and I know that he lost. And boy, was I wrong! And boy, are you great!" And boy, would I really be a good ally. <laughs> so even though I backed the wrong horse to try and defeat you, if you would let me, I would still like to be king <laughs> of Judea. <laughs> and Augustus, Octavian Augustus, says, okay, we'll let you do that, but we're going to trim your sails a little bit. You're, we're going to have some other kings like your sons, Philip and uh, Herod Antipas in the north. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that probably would have. Believe me. Believe me, I tell you, you don't want to mess with these guys. Uh, and by the way, he get he, he said something. Like, you know what else that Herod the Great did? He was a major benefactor for the Olympic Games. I mean, in Rome, they love Herod the Great. He's doing all this great stuff. So he had some capital. 
But I think I still think it's an amazing amount of hot spot on his part to then go to the. I, I yeah I bark I back Mark Anthony. All right, this still too dark. We keep you guys awake. Okay. All right. So Herod Herod does this great sales job. He gets to maintain his his uh, kingship. Now, one thing that we do know when we start trying to date everything, probably the one date that we have in all of this first century question about what time and where and stuff like that, the one that we probably have the best sources for time-wise is that we know when Herod dies. And Herod will then die in 4 BC. And so everything we're going to mark from there is going to, we're, we're up against multiple Roman sources and Josephus and even early Christian writers understanding the characterized Alright, questions so far on all this? All this history stuff kind of washing by you? Okay. Alright. So when we start talking about this area that we're going to talk about, what's happening in for Joseph and Mary and what's going on. This is, this is the best portrayal I'm fine of uh, uh, Jerusalem in 1, in one uh, AD. Okay? And, and if you look, you've got, so you've got the temple on the upper, upper right-hand side coming down in this kind of this oval shape down off the bottom of that. That is the, that's the ancient city of David. Uh, the, the Pool of Siloam is right at the bottom. When we, when we hike Hezekiah's Tunnel, we come out right at the bottom. There you can see a little bit of pool of water. Uh, pool of Bethesda is on the other side of the temple. But notice, so you got the old city over here on the right. On the left is the rest of the city. And then farther up, that's the Roman stuff. That's all the things that the Romans and the Sadducees were building. Uh, the garrisons for the army uh, was up there. Uh, in all of that, where was where was uh, where would Jesus be uh, hung on a cross and crucified and buried? Right there, just outside the city wall, by the main road. But again, you can see kind of the, the Romanness here, and then the rest of. Depending on who all goes and representatives from families or how they do. The good news that they had at the moment is that they were still living under Pax Romana, which is nobody messes with Romans. And right now, if we have Roman garrisons or curators or tax collectors or something like that, one of the things that they would say about Rome is the same thing they would say about Mussolini in Italy. You know, okay, he's a dictator, but the trains run on time. 
Yeah, we've got the Roman Empire for all of its successes, but there's no wars going on. Because we've conquered everybody, and we do with an iron hand. And by the way, if you try and get crosses at all, we crucify you. So, uh, but still, the tradition was, if you're going to build a city, there's still a danger of who might be coming. So you still got to build a massive wall around the whole thing. And even Bethlehem, I'll show you a second. Bethlehem itself had a wall. Okay. All right. So let me set up one other thing here yeah. before, and before the curtain rises on our little story here. Just an understanding about how the, uh, how the, the temple functions. Uh, and that is that part of the... There was a series of three altars within the, within the temple that if you were Jewish, you knew these, you knew these really well. First of all is the altar of sacrifice. Um, it was outside of the, of the holy place. Um, in fact, if we walked into the temple, and you think about our temple, the peace and quiet, you're trying to just solve the question, you're doing work for your ancestors, you go to Dallas Temple. If you went into the temple of Herod's temple, the Temple of Solomon, is that a quiet place? No, that's a butcher shop. <coughs> there animals and, and sacrifices of animals and it is just like this massive butcher shop and they are and they are killing them and then putting them on the burnt offering and so the animal is is burning up here so it, I can't even imagine what the smell was like and the cacophony of animals uh, that was in there and they would so then they would burn it down some of it they'd cut off and feed to the priest this is, this is, I mean priests ate barbecue a lot um, but then they would take the rest of it that had burned down, and what are they going to do with those ashes? Well, they then take, they take those ashes, they've got a little silver shovel, they're going to take some of those burnt ashes, and the priest, whose job it is to be functioning in the temple that day, is going to take those ashes, and is going to go in and going to pour it on uh, the altar of incense. Uh, it's then mixed with, with uh, really specified spices so that it, it does two things. One, it smells great. Two, the smoke is set up in such a way, and we're still not exact, exactly sure how they did the smoke couldn't go horizontal. The smoke was supposed to go completely vertical because it represented what? The prayer is going to God. It's going to go straight up. But isn't it interesting that the incense and the prayer are based on what? Burnt offering, the, the burnt, the, the sacrifice. That the sacrifice is part of what makes the prayers salient. Okay? That kind of cool? Think about the, the metaphor of how that works. Without the sacrifice, there's no there's no prayers. Okay. Alright. So then what would happen is that uh, some of the blood and the ashes would also then ultimately in the days of Solomon would then be taken to the altar of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the top of that of course as we know is the mercy seat, supposed to be God's chair. Some of the blood would be placed on the tip of both of the altar of incense and on the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and so 
one of the things that's always struck me about the, the temple there is that there are three, there's three altars. The altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. In the church, do we have, do we have three altars on our way there? Where, where is our first, where's the altar of sacrifice? Yep. Here's the first altar. Now, we're sacrificing animals. Yeah. Neil Maxwell says we sacrifice the animal within us. It's really kind of cool. Okay. Now, where's the second? Where is where is the altar of incense? The altar where prayers are offered. Yeah. Right in front of the curtain. Right. Okay. So, so that second altar, in some ways, uh, and and uh, President Oaks has talked about this in so many ways. Uh, the work that we do at this altar is to prepare us for the work that we do at the next altar. That where are we going to take upon us the name of thy son? He says that is a, that's a subtle hint towards where that happens in, in our temple. Yeah, exactly right. And so it's going to go straight and we're all going to point in that direction, right? So... So the, the idea there is that, that and, then, and then the Ark of the, the Covenant, where, where do finally covenants get made? Let's see the room. Sure. We have those, we have those three uh, altars. Right here. Um, and by the way, to get, past, to get past the first one, the altar of sacrifice, anybody can come to our sacrament meeting and participate in this. What have you got to do to be able to get to the altar of incense? You've got to pass the angels to stand the sentinels to get us back into that Garden of Eden's returning place. There's angel number one. There's two. And then? You've got a signature on that, too. Yeah. Their signatures don't inspire <laughs> No. Now your signature is dependent on the It is. But there's one more angel. The recommender, or girl, lady, right? So I just love the, the the symbolism of all of this. Even though our temples are not Law of Moses temples, but the symbolism was there to try and lead them and teach them as a as a school. How does Paul put it? Schoolmaster. Yeah. All right. So so now let's go to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll try that next time. I don't have a recommend, but I'm bringing brownies. <laughs> no, no, they don't suggest that the brownies will even pass the desk. But, the, but if you're coming back anyway, you have and you happen to have brownies, you will accept some. I'll remember that next time. Uh, that's funny. Okay, so. Let, let's uh, let's peel back the uh, for just a second. Let, let's hop over now to Luke one. Now we, we we we've taken almost an hour to set up kind of what happens in here, uh, so we can see all of this in context. 
of Herod. Okay, so we're probably about 5 B.C. It was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest by the name of Zacharias, uh, of the course of Abia. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, the course of Abia. Uh, without trying to make this too detailed, in, in terms of running the temple, there were actually 24 courses, 24 chorus, if you will. Uh, the, the course of Abia that Zacharias belonged to was the seventh course, seventh quorum. Okay. Now, here's what I'll, I'll just I'll just throw this out just to keep the keep everything kind of murky, right? What we don't know, so is that if everybody serves about two weeks a year, then that covers the whole year. That each each course would come in and serve. And we don't know if they serve for one week or two weeks. The, uh, the really bottom line to all of this is that if they serve for one week, then we don't know which time of the year that Zacharias was serving. Therefore, we don't know whether John was born in the spring or the fall. If they serve for if they serve for two consecutive weeks, which is more of a possibility, then it up then then it ups the chances that Jesus was born in the spring. Well, and, and Jesus, because ultimately the question is when was Jesus born? Yes. That, that became, now, if they serve. Opposite weeks, there's a chance that Jesus was born in September. And again, we don't have that information. Okay? So is there any chance for like the temple Could be. Uh, I think most of the stuff that I read suggests that they would they would do it. And I'll, I'll tell you why there's a chance that they didn't overlap. And it and it's 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 really and it's right here in verse nine. If you think about over the centuries, by the time we get to uh, the time of Zacharias, there's a lot of priests. You know, they've been having kids. Unless you're Elizabeth, then you're not having kids. Okay? There are a lot. There, so there's a lot of priests. So if, if, and there's only going to be one priest that's going to take uh, that daily sacrifice, is going to take the burnt offering and put it in, put it on the altar of incense. There's a lot of priests. So uh, part of, we get a suggestion of it when we look at verse 9. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot. In other words, there's a pretty good chance they were drawing lots. And there's a pretty good chance, I know that Cleon Skousen was one of those that believed that uh, Zacharias, this was his only shot in his entire life to be in the temple. I don't know if that's true or not. <coughs> Cleon Skousen certainly believed that. Uh, there's a good chance of that, that this might have been that you drew a lot and you win the lucky lot, so you get to be the one to actually go take the, the 
stuff into the altar. Right, and, and, and this happened twice a day. There was a morning one and then an afternoon one. And were, were there enough priests that you'd get to do this every time your course came up twice a year or once a year? This would say, we don't know. But we do know that there was a lot thing in place. So he's going to, uh, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Uh, Tan and the whole multitude of the people were praying without the time of incense. Makes me wonder if it's if probably the morning one. Um, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing where? To the right side of the altar of incense. Inside the holy place. Now, let me ask you. Under normal circumstances, couldn't the angel have actually... The angel probably would have appeared, you would think, in the most holy place. Especially if you're bringing this kind of news. Why wouldn't they do it in the Holy of Holies? Right. Not only was it not Zach right, what else is not there? The, 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 the ark. The ark. There was no... It was an empty, the Holy of Holies during Herod's temple was empty. Because it was never... It was captured somewhere on the Babylonian thing. And, and we know that it was never in the... So it makes sense that the angel comes to the most holy place the holy place and the altar is there and there he's going to go ahead and uh, and declare that good news to him that's how, that's how it works but that's why I say I think it's the morning prayer in other words if you're going to get your day started everybody's going to show up there they're going to burn the the sacrifice they go in to preach listen um goes in and burns the altar of incense and then comes back out and that then completes that, that morning ceremony. And so people are waiting to finish this thing. They got this morning they got places to go. He's not showing up. Okay? If it turns out, here, here's one other option on that. If you really want to get there's a chance depending on what when this was happening that this also could have been Yom Kippur. And they would have waited for the priest to come out after doing the sacrifice, and then he's going to speak the name of God for the only time all year. Possible there might have been that. More likely just the day later. Okay. Alright, so we know that we know that one. Questions on this? I'm not gonna necessarily go into all of the John the Baptist stuff, because it's a great story. This time of year, read Luke one as well as Luke Luke two. Great story. Okay. Twice a day. One in the morning, one in the late afternoon. Um, and by the way, it's this it's this offering, by the way, that when you know when Jesus comes in and he clears out the temple and he overthrows the money changers, he shut that down. That was just not Jesus having a little temper tantrum. That was a coup. He took over, he and his people, they couldn't run the temple if they can't run the money changer. And they're occupying the whole, they, that was a coup for three days. 
Okay? Sadducees aren't making any money. People can't do their offering. That was that was an all-out. Oh. Because what he says is, well, that's true. Well, what he said, he, he didn't see it as a coup, right? He just said, I'm the temple. And by the way, this temple is going to get torn down in three days. And then it'll, and then it'll be rebuilt in three And they're like, what? Have you seen the stones? Those are like 20-ton stones. And he goes, no, it'll, it'll be rebuilt in three days. What he was saying is, you're right. Maybe not a temple. Yeah, he's going, I'm the temple. I'm the temple, guys. You know? So, but they would have seen it as a good All right. One other piece of information I want to throw out here. Then... Okay, so now we've got... How many have been to Bethlehem? Did it look like that? <laughs> Although it's all uphill. Past all the people selling lunch. In the early days, again, if you're going to have a city, you've got to have walls. You've got to protect. The ancient first century Bethlehem looks something like that. Okay? With the shepherd fields down, down below. Um, so Joseph and Mary are going to make their way down uh, there. Now, they're going to go through Samaria. But, let me back up. In the second century, there was... I'm blocking his name. Uh, there was a monk. No, it wouldn't have been a monk. There's a writer. First, second century Christian writer wrote a wonderful little fiction poem about Joseph and Mary going down to Bethlehem. It was really, really cool. <laughs> that it's them, it's them two and a donkey, and they're walking down, all the way down. Of course, this guy is not living anywhere near Israel. They're coming down there. She's, he's about to give birth. They don't know what to do, uh, so they, they park in a cave. And they, and they hang out in this cave, and then she's about to give birth. Joseph is beside himself. He doesn't know how to birth babies. So he goes, he goes running off, but, and a lady shows up to deliver the baby, but she's got a withered hand. So with one hand, she delivers the Christ child, and the baby's born, and then the infant goes, uh, and he touches the withered hand and heals up. Great, great move by an infant's baby. <laughs> uh, and then Joseph comes back. And uh, Now, so, so there's a lot of that. But it's funny how a lot of that image of mom and dad and donkey alone on their way down to Bethlehem through Samaria that is crawling with robbers and people to waylay them and nobody else is on the road even though there's some kind of census in place. What are Mary and Joseph actually probably doing? They're with a large group of people. Probably like, like you're, you're, 
other people have got to go there and they're going to go with family. So they're in a large group. They're going to go down to uh, Jerusalem, down to Bethlehem. Um, and the question is, where are they going to stay? Okay. By the way, as a side note, does Elizabeth know anybody in the greater Jerusalem area? If Nazareth was formed by a group of families going down, yeah. and the group of families is coming back, then there's probably only a dozen different family organizations going back. And Joseph and Mary visit Absolutely. And they're being shunned because Mary's pregnant and shouldn't be. And that, that's really a possibility. Now, by the time they go down, does that story reach them? Have they already been married by then? We don't know. It would be a little bit unseemly if he's going to travel with a woman, you know, a couple hundred miles down, and he's not married to her. So, here's... He did, almost immediately, right? But, by the way, in the Greek, the Greek word for when he was distressed that she was pregnant, uh, the Greek word is angry. He felt betrayed. It, it, was a, it was a sharper amount of emotion about what had happened here. And, and just, he couldn't believe this, that this had happened, right? Okay, so anyway, they're coming down. Um, and, but again, does she happen to know, outside even their family, their immediate family, even just back a couple of generations, who else does she know down there? Elizabeth. Did I say Elizabeth? Mary. Who does Mary know? Elizabeth, Zachariah. I mean, they knew people. And they had family connections. So what is, what is more likely... First, first century home. A couple things I need you to notice. First of all... Um, it is open-ended. So in some way, if you're, I don't know, let's say you're a shepherd, and you hear that there might be big doings, and you're looking for the sign of the baby, uh, you're not having to knock on doors. You, you just have to walk down the street and look and peer in. You can peer in past the, uh, into the courtyard. Uh, by the way, they still eat out in the courtyard. The courtyard becomes uh, really important. Um, That in the corner is really important. If you have animals, and let's say you've got a couple of sheep, uh, it's not it's not summer yet. You're, you haven't got them out in the upper fields, in green pastures. You're going to keep them inside at night to keep away from. There are wolves, human and animal. You're going to keep them inside at night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But also, you, you're also going to have your personal, whether it's goats, or goat milk, or you know. In other words, at night, uh, and, and someday, someday we'll go through the uh, the 23rd Psalm that actually walks us through 
how they, and not, 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 it's not the 23rd Psalm, it's a parable that Jesus gives. Where he's, he's talking about taking an animal from the inside of the house out to the pastures. Really kind of cool. Okay? But the animal would be right there. Now, what would be right in between the animal in the corner and the rest of the house? A feeding trough called a manger. And that's why the feeding trough, the manger, would have been inside the house, right next to the animals. Now, up here, on the upstairs, is uh, the Catalima that uh, the King James Version translated as what? In. It actually is guest chamber. The actual Greek. And then, so if you actually go back and you look, even the King James Version says, there was no room for them in the Catalina. Guest chamber. Okay. I, I think there's got to be. It's not having the wall there because it would be. They'd have some privacy to that. Yeah. I, I think. Open it up as a panel. Yeah. I, I think that's true. Yeah. So, but you've got this guest thing in the corner, and there's no room for them in the Catalina. They've come to visit somebody, and whether this is Elizabeth's house or whether this is just ancestry house or cousins, some they're there. Okay. And the nice thing about that, then there's also midwives and people that can help marry. But there's no room in the Catalina because the place is really full. Okay. So where are they going to put the baby? Where they're going to probably have have the birth and deliver the baby and place the baby somewhere down here in, in the manger. Okay. So I, I guess I prefer to look at it and think about the fact that rather than them stuck out in a little cave, that they're in this wonderful place, which surrounded by family, lovingly taken care of. Okay. Now, let me let me give you uh, one other possibility. Because again, this, according to all the scholars that I read, they believe this is the most likely scenario given everything else. There is one other scenario that I think is kind of intriguing to you. Uh, one of our uh, one of our guides uh, in in Israel. Mahmoud is uh, Bedouin. He grew up Bedouin, means they live in tents and they, you know, they, they have sheep and stuff like that. And, and Mahmoud has now been leading LDS groups, helping drive buses, never LDS groups for a number of years. He's got all kinds of pictures of him as possible. Mahmoud just one of them. Um, I had a conversation with him in October, and I said, I, I, I got a question for you. Uh, as a Bedouin, um, what would happen if a group of shepherds believed that they had been told of the birth of, of the king of Israel by angels, and then they went and found this family like in a dirty stable somewhere? 
what would happen? And he's like, take them home. They got what? They got tents. They got the hospitality of a Bedouin. And we've eaten in the courtyard of a Bedouin. Okay? The hospitality of a Bedouin say there is no way that shepherds would find this young family stranded in a cave and then walk away and they would have taken their, if it is spring and they're birthing lambs and stuff like that, the, the women are there, they would take them to their tent, they would feed them, they would care for them. And I, I've asked, and I asked our, our Palestinian guy in Bethlehem the same question, the same thing. They'd never be left. So we would take our, our hospitality. That's another possibility. If they weren't able to possibly get to, to that setting for family to take care of them if they happen. If the shepherds found them, they wouldn't have spent the rest of the night anywhere else. Does that make sense? I, I believe those. Okay. Questions on that? I just dumped. I just dumped his yeah. Yeah. Houses like this in India today. Really? Today. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's in fact, uh, I was in uh, last year, uh, I was in one near uh, a Mexican house in Chichen Itza that looked just like this. Just this open courtyard coming in, and, and you can actually stand up here and look right through the house. Yeah. So the animal, they, they offer sheep for, for offerings. Yeah, come and right in the sheep gate and bring them on in. And there was a flock of sheep that was set fire. Yes. Yeah. Had to be. And so, if you look at where a shepherd might be uh, watching the flock, the ones who would be able to go to a house in town quickly would be the shepherds who's part of their job. Some, some believe that those shepherds that went to visit the Christ child were officiating in their priestly office when they did so. Could easily have been done that. In fact, if you go to the book of Micah, Micah calls the place Migdal that there would be a tower of the flock. The flock. The flock specifically for the temple. And, and I, I think that's absolutely true. Who else? Who else but a group of priesthood holders, Levites, and their families would be the ones entrusted to be that first set of witnesses uh, for, the, for the birth of the Lamb. I, I just think that's brilliant. So. All right. Is that plenty? Yeah. Yeah. And he also went into the service, and he can't go into service 
filters is a thirty. So and he had was to be the forerunner of Christ. And he uh, he had been uh, doing his job for a number of months before Christ came to be That's true. Yeah, there on the Jordan River, he would have been and part so, of work. Uh, and there were, I have been trying to think what the what the uh, purpose or the validation of the fact that Christ was born on April sixth. But the uh, thing is that the uh, birthing of the lambs. Now his lamb was. The birthing of the lambs would not have taken place until April. Yeah, yeah. That's why. That's why I think a lot of people look at it and say we think that John was born in like September. Uh, I could probably make an argument for Jesus being born in September, but it's all speculation. We don't know a number of things to look at. But, 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 but uh, I do think again, as we as we uh, as we look at all of this, part of what makes this fun, I think, is is we have the whole history of uh, not just the way that we look at it, but there's the first century writers. Justin Martyr uh, wrote a lot on this, um, and. And for them, these stories were, were so critical. And it, it's one of the reasons why it is that when, uh, when Constantine, uh, on his deathbed, basically, adapts Christianity to the entire Roman Empire. Uh, we go back to the Romans, eventually Christianity conquered the, Roman, the great Roman Empire. Um, and his mother, Anne, uh, wants to venerate all these places. They go to places like Nazareth and Bethlehem and uh, Golgotha and stuff and put churches in every one of those places because they want to create a pilgrimage. Um, and, and we can we can kind of snicker a little bit at that, but it isn't interesting how all of us that get a chance to any chance to go to Israel, we'll go do it because we want to. We want to be where these things happen, and there's a spirit where these things happen. I think that we do the same thing with uh, the the uh, sacred grove. We do the same things with the uh, Liberty Jail, and we do the same. You know, we just want to be where these sacred things happen. We don't know if we're exactly historically in the right place, but we want to be as close as possible. And I, I just love the fact that as as Christians that we want to be, that we gain some spirit and strength from being close to these settings and, and, and we get it. And, and again, like I've mentioned before, uh, I always, and I'll finish with this, um, I had the same reaction again in, in walking to the, uh, the place where, um, where, where uh, Catholics generally venerate that they think that's where Jesus was, that's where the tomb was and all of that. Uh, it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's loud and it's cacophonous and noisy and people are crammed in there wall to wall and everything. And I always look at all of them as they, as they stream out of that Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Committed to be better. <laughs> it's like they came, they came close, 
And whether it was exactly here or there, or whether the tomb in Bethlehem that everybody goes down to, whether it was there or somewhere else, they walk away trying to be better. And I think that's part of what we try and do with the scriptures and our understanding is we try and touch somehow that holiness that happened in Jesus. You don't want to stink the whole house up, right? Right. <laughs> True. It's not necessarily the vision that we sometimes paint uh, in our in our kind of things. I, I think I think the Lord was well loved. I think Mary was well loved. I think the first family was well loved, and surrounded by people that loved them. And that's the end of the Yeah, and, and, and you know you're close, but you don't necessarily have to have to base everything on it has to be this exact spot. So it is funny. We, just, we love to speculate and see how close we can get to that spot. Last summer we were in Philadelphia and we stand again in front of the Liberty Bell and you go, you know, there's something powerful. Anyway, uh, bearing my testimony, these things happen. Uh, we don't always know the, exactly in what order or how or when or something like that. But it's born to our souls that, that that's part of our tradition and that's part of our faith. Uh, and I pray that we can kind of keep these in mind as we kind of go through this next weekend. Uh, stay warm. It's supposed to be kind of cold for Christmas. But, okay. So we just hang in there and do our Christmas traditions. I think that's about as good as it gets. I bear you my testimony. Thank you for this uh, uh, semester. I'll see you in January. And I leave that with you in Jesus. We get a prayer somebody? And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe 
so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.